As has been the case the past few Sundays, we have two different texts. One is in Ezra chapter 6, and the other is in the book of Haggai chapter 2. So if you want to turn there and keep your finger in one of them while we're looking at the other. We've been looking at the return of the exiles to Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the temple which the Babylonians had burned and destroyed. There are four books in the Old Testament that deal with this time period, at least four. Uh, Two are historical, Ezra and Nehemiah, and two are prophetic, Haggai and Zechariah. What we've seen thus far is that the project to rebuild the temple was the result of the Lord's doing. He moved the heart of the Persian king Cyrus to get this project going. Uh, He moved the hearts of the leaders of Judah and Benjamin and others as well. The project gets off to a good start, to a strong start. Cyrus returns all the gold and silver implements that had been stolen, if you wish, by Nebuchadnezzar, and now he's giving them back to them. Um, Those who do not go back contribute generously. Those who do go back also contribute generously to this project. About 40,000 people return with the intent of rebuilding the temple. An altar is built and the sacrificial system is reinstated. The foundation of the temple is laid. But as we've also seen, opposition arises. This is a theme we find throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, but also in the book of Haggai. About opposition, we've learned at least four things. First of all, it takes different forms. The temptation to compromise, attempts to discourage or to create fear, and simply direct opposition. The second thing we saw is that it's an ongoing enterprise. People just don't sort of oppose the people of God and if that doesn't work then they let it go it's an ongoing thing in Ezra chapter 4 we see three distinct attempts to get royal support to stop the project of rebuilding the temple then we learn that sometimes opposition is successful in human terms the rebuilding of the temple is stopped for 16 years as a result of a petition from the enemies of God's people that they send to the king But the last thing, and we saw this last week, is that the people of God are to continue in the face of opposition. And this is where Haggai comes in. There are four sermons in this short book, two chapters. Uh, The first one takes place between Ezra chapter 5 verse 1 and Ezra chapter 5 verse 2. In between there, we have these sermons. We see that Ezra as a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of God. This is an authentic word from God. This is an authoritative word from God. Such a word had not been heard for decades. And now God is speaking through his prophets and the people listen. And the word is, they need to get to work. They need to start rebuilding the temple. And they obey God. In spite of the royal decree, they obey God. Because the Lord their God had sent him, that is Haggai, because the people feared the Lord, And because the Lord said, I am with you. Within 23 days, three weeks after this first sermon, people get to work on rebuilding the temple. The opposition renews itself. It is not content just to say, oh well, I guess they win. It is renewed. The second sermon seeks to encourage the people to continue what they have begun. This is not so much because of opposition, but because of sentimentality, I think, or because of memory. There may have been some alive 
who had seen the first temple, which was magnificent. And this will be a shadow of that. This will be uh, not only the second temple, but sort of secondary um, in comparison to that. They've been working on the project, but they have little to show for it. And when they compare the past with the present, um, why should they continue? In fact, Haggai asks them, does it seem to you like nothing? You know, this new temple that you're going to build, it pales in comparison to the first one. The Lord says through Haggai, be strong, O Zerubbabel. He's the governor. Be strong, O Joshua. He's the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the Lord, uh, people of the land, and work. And they do. And why should they? Well, God says, I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. And then promises are made. And here we have uh, a selection. We have several messianic prophecies that are given, which I would argue they may not have understood. But there is a promise made from God that he would in fact send the desired of all nations the coming of the Messiah and the house would be filled with glory this also refers to Jesus coming today we come to the third and fourth sermons of Haggai the third is found in chapter 2 beginning at verse number 10 on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai The dating tells us this is about two months since the previous prophecy or sermon. The date is December 18th by our calendar. Haggai is to ask the priest for a specific ruling. Verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priest what the law says. If a person carries consecrated meat in the fold of his garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, oil or other food, Does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. The question is not for information. God obviously knows the answer. I would argue that Haggai does as well. But to provoke thought. It is something that God wants them to think about. The issue is twofold. Holiness or consecration and defilement. We'll come to defilement in a bit. The question is, are they both contagious? Consecrated flesh is that the flesh of a sacrifice. And if a priest uh, were to take some of the sacrifice and put it in the fold of his robe, and somehow, uh, well, the robe itself becomes consecrated. But if the robe touches something else, it doesn't transfer. It doesn't go meat of the sacrifice to robe. Yes, that happens. But it doesn't go robe to whatever else that it touches. Um, By the way, this is straight from the law. In Leviticus chapter 6, whatever touches any of the flesh will become holy. It has to touch the flesh. Uh, If you touch something that touches the flesh, then it doesn't count. And the priests agree with this. They say no. Okay. So, what about contamination? Verse 13. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of these things... Does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Unlike consecration or holiness, contamination or defilement is contagious. 
So if in fact I touch someone, if I touch a dead body, this makes me unclean. If I then touch you, that makes you unclean as well. So with something that's consecrated, if it's in my, in my pocket, my, you know, my pocket, the cloth is holy, but if that touches something else, no, it doesn't work that way. That only works with contamination. So what is the point? Verse 14. Then Haggai said, So it is with the, this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. See, Israel had been known as a holy nation. The Lord told them at Sinai, You will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But they had become defiled. Meaning everything they touched was defiled. Everything they touched. Even the temple they are working on has been defiled because of their touch. So what can they do? The Mosaic law, in fact, has regulations for dealing with defilement. But not on such a scale. If you, in fact, touch something and become unclean, there are things you can do. The law is very clear. But when the whole nation becomes unclean, what are they to do? What is the solution? Look at verse 15. Now give careful thought to this. From this day on, consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not turn to me. This portion begins with a call to consider, to give careful thought. What are they supposed to think about? Well, in verses 15, 16, and 17, the difficult days of the past. Before they began working on the temple, how were things? Quite difficult. And the Lord makes it clear, this is his doing. This is his doing because of their failure to obey. What now? Verse 18. From this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there any seed left in the barn? Until now the, fig, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. From this day on, I will bless you. Give thought to when they laid the foundation, there was rejoicing. But then they stopped working. And so did the productivity of everything that they had planted. The vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate, the olive tree have not borne fruit. So again we ask, what is to be done? The last sentence of the sermon answers it all. From this day on I will bless you. You see, it is the same Lord who brought blight and mildew and hail who caused their crops not to produce as they should, who will in fact in turn bless them. The Lord can withhold blessing and he can give it freely. Haggai as a prophet is one who speaks on behalf of another. He speaks on behalf of God. And he tells them of this wonderful promise. Because they have obeyed the Lord and continued the work on the temple, God will bless them. Now, this might seem to be a system of rewards. 
you know, if you if you obey God, He will bless you. If you disobey Him, then there will be consequences. Um, And I find myself oftentimes thinking, well, I, I need to defend God in this matter, uh, that God's not trying to buy our obedience, he's not trying to bribe us, like if you're a good boy, then I'll give you a blessing. But stop and think a minute. If you do what is wrong, or you don't do what is right, there will be consequences. That's just the way things are. Uh, but we should also remember that the consequences we experience usually are not what we deserve. David wrote in Psalm 103, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, or repay us according to our iniquities. Whenever we receive from God, whether it be the consequences of our disobedience or reward for our obedience, it is grace. It is 100% grace. God gives us far more than we deserve and he does, not, he does not punish us. He does not chastise us, I think, as we deserve as well. Now we come to the fourth and final sermon. It begins in verse number 20. This one is not addressed to people. It is addressed to one person. And it happens on the same day as the previous sermon. Verse 20. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. What is this about? Well, first of all, again, we hear messianic promises. I will shake the heavens and the earth. This is divine intervention. And what we read in verse number 22 is, in fact, speaking of the messianic coming. But the second purpose of this sermon is to speak of restoration. Zerubbabel, who is a governor, is described as my servant, someone who is chosen, like my signet ring. And one might think, well, yeah, he's of the line of David. This makes perfect sense. It seems entirely appropriate. This doesn't seem like a big deal. But we need to go back to Jeremiah chapter 22 for the full significance. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would, pull you, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians. I will hurl you and your mother, or the mother who gave you birth, into another country where neither of you was born, and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. What's the connection? Who is Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim? He is Zerubbabel's grandfather. So it is Jehoiakim, Shealtiel, and then Zerubbabel. Jehoiakim, God says, listen, if you were like a signet ring, I'm going to take you off. I'm going to cast you into Babylon, and you will never come back. 
But Zerubbabel has come back. The grandson has returned. And where his grandfather is taken off as a signet ring, he is like a signet ring. This ring is what we would call, I guess, a seal, uh, in which uh, the king's seal was engraved on it, and it was used to mark official documents. It was either worn on the ring finger or around a cord uh, of the king's neck so that it could not be stolen or misused. It is precious. It represents the presence and the power of the king, the authority of the king. This is what Zerubbabel is like. In the presence of God, he has the authority. He has been restored. What his grandfather lost, not being able to come back, he has come back. And now he has the authority God has given him. It is a wonderful restoration. And again, I think a great example of how we need to look at the prophetic books with the historical books, because otherwise what Haggai says here doesn't make a lot of sense. Now we go back to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. What we see in this last part of chapter 6 is what I would call a long obedience. Beginning at verse number 14. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs as a sin offering for all Israel, twelve male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem according to what is written in the book of Moses. The prophet Zechariah, we may end up studying Zechariah in this series, as one who speaks for God, asks the question, who despises the day of small things? Four and a half years after Haggai's first sermon, the temple is completed. It is a venture of faith. It is a long obedience. It was begun in hard times and continued in a time of small things in the face of ongoing oppositions. Seventy years after the first temple was destroyed, the second one is dedicated. It is completed. But again, some might see it as a day of small things. We read here that a hundred bulls, two hundred rams, and four hundred male lambs are sacrificed. Now, for me, that sounds like a lot. You know, if you, if you kill a hundred bulls and two hundred rams, four hundred male lambs, that's seems like a lot but compared to the dedication of the first temple in which 22,000 oxen were sacrificed 
and 120,000 sheep and goats were sacrificed. This is a tiny fraction in comparison to that. It is indeed a day of small things. But it is what God has commanded. There's something more, and that is that 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel, are offered as sin offerings. No mention of this is made in the first temple. I think the people, the exiles, recognize the sins of their ancestors and their own sins, and therefore they offer the sin offerings. They also recognize that there are 12 tribes. The 10 may have been lost, but they see themselves as God's people. Now the last four verses, we have a Passover, beginning at verse number 19. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover. The priests and Levites had purified themselves and were all ceremonially clean. The Levites slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the exiles, for their brothers, the priests, and for themselves. So the Israelites who had returned from exile ate it, together with all who had separated themselves from the unclean practices of their Gentile neighbors, in order to seek the Lord, the God of Israel. For seven days they celebrated with joy the Feast of Unleavened Bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, the God of Israel. Several things worth noting. Again, we're reading in English, but beginning in verse number 19, the writer begins to write in Hebrew again. Previously, he's been writing in Aramaic. Okay? And part of that was because the decrees were in Aramaic, but then somehow he just continues in Aramaic. But here with the Passover, there seems to be a recognition. Oh, that's right. We are God's people. We are Hebrews. We are Jews. And Hebrew is our language. Their identity is reaffirmed. And it is also done so through Passover. It marked the beginning of their exodus, their deliverance out of slavery from Egypt. There's an emphasis on cleanness, being ceremonially clean. Uh, at separating from those who are unclean. We will see this more as we go along in both Ezra and Nehemiah. But then there's verse number 22. It's one of those people, one of those things where people, aha, I gotcha. Because it mentions the king of Assyria. Well, if you've been with us in Ezra, you know that it is Cyrus, king of Persia. It seems that the writer of Ezra has made a mistake. Um, no, I think that writer is trying to make a point. You see, Assyria was the empire in this part of the world. And then they were conquered by the Babylonians, and they extended the empire a bit. And then they were conquered by the Persians, who extended it even more. But it's still the same territory, basically. So when the writer says Assyria, he's thinking of that first empire that took the ten tribes away. And then replaced by the Babylonians, and then by the Persians. But it is God who is in control of human history. Not just Cyrus the Persian, the good guy, but even the bad guys, the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians. Through it all, God was in control. And the result is that God filled them with joy. They recognized that he had changed the attitude of their oppressors, those who had been over them for for decades. You might be wondering at this point, why the emphasis on the temple? Uh, 
You may remember that we saw that the emphasis thus far is not on the return from exile, it's on building the temple. And to do that, they have to return from exile, but that's secondary to the rebuilding. The return has a purpose. Haggai and Zechariah have the task of ensuring that the temple is built. But what is the big deal about the temple? I think one can make the argument, incorrectly, that the temple is not that big of a deal. And that somehow this is messed up that they are emphasizing the building seemingly more than the people. Consider that when they built the first temple, no prophet went to David and said, build the temple. No prophet went to Solomon and said, build the temple. Nathan the prophet said, if you want to build the temple, the Lord says you can do so. But there was no word from the Lord that said that this was something that needed to be done. Secondly, if you look at the prophets, beginning with Isaiah, they question time and time again how, how efficient, how how efficacious, how good is the sacrificial system tied to the temple. Uh, the famous passage in Isaiah 1, the multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks of you this trampling of my courts, temple courts? They go to the temple. God's like, who invited you? You know, why are you here? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. So the temple, at least in the prophetic writings, didn't seem to be a good place because God says, stop whatever it is you're doing here. But thirdly, we also find that the prophets assured the people that the Lord would be with them even in exile. You see, the temple represented the presence of God. And if I leave Jerusalem, where is the presence of God? Well, the prophets assure them God will be with them. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. This is from Ezekiel. Although I sent them far away among the nations and scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary to them in the countries where they have gone. So why are they rebuilding the temple? You could say, well, it's because of the sacrificial system. Well, we already saw that they built an altar first and were doing sacrifices. One could argue they didn't need the temple for that. One could almost argue the temple seems unnecessary. But it was necessary, so much so that God sent two of his prophets to encourage the people to rebuild it. What is the big deal? Well, the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will see. By the way, a hint of it is found in our, uh, today we did the prayer of confession, the promise of forgiveness. The answer is found there. I would close by pointing out that the rebuilding of the temple was an act of faith. It represented a symbol of continuity with the past.
The present is not the same as the past. I think the past may be idealized because of faulty memories. But we don't live in the past. We are not to live in the past, in the present. We are to live in the present. And as I said, the past can rob the present of possibilities. Haggai speaks the word of the Lord, Be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land. The Lord tells them, I am with you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. These are words we should take to heart. One more thing, and then I'll stop. The whole business of holiness and defilement. That defilement seems much stronger than holiness. And if you think about it, uh, I'm not a surgeon, I'm not a hospital person, but operating rooms have to be clean. It's very difficult to make them clean. It's very easily for them to become contaminated. You can very easily contaminate an operating room. So generally speaking, what we see in the Old Testament is that contamination seems far more effective than consecration or holiness. See, if you have something that is holy and you put it in a robe, the robe is holy, but if it touches something, there's no effect. But if, in fact, you have something in a robe and it is unclean, whatever the robe touches is also unclean. Uncleanness seems stronger than cleanness. Until the coming of the Messiah. Until the coming of Jesus. And after the wonderful Sermon on the Mount, we have the story of the leper who comes to Jesus, Matthew chapter 8, and says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me whole. And Jesus touches him and says, I am willing. Now in the Old Testament system, Jesus would have been contaminated. But in fact, the man is healed. The holiness that we see in Jesus is greater than any defilement. That's why we have these messianic promises. The desire of the nations is coming. Right now, they're in a situation where it seems like evil is stronger than good. Defilement is far more contaminating than any good or holiness or consecration could be. But the day is coming when the Holy One of Israel will come. And when he touches something or someone, he is not contaminated. It, in fact, becomes holy. And by by God's grace in our lives, he came into our lives and he touched us. And for all our sin and sinfulness, we did not diminish his holiness. He, in fact, made us his children. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you that we can see, can look back, to see that we stand in a line of your people that goes back centuries. And that what you said to them is true to us as well. You do not treat us as our sins deserve. You bless us far more than we could ever imagine. I thank you for the prophet Haggai and his, the word he spoke from you. 
and for your people who were obedient over the long haul in difficult times and who finished the temple. But above all, we thank you for the coming of the Lord Jesus in which we see your holiness, your goodness is stronger than anything else. Thank you for bringing us together on this day. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. Pray for Jason and Gwen as they travel, as they come back to us, that you would give them safety. May each of us have a sense of your presence the coming days. I pray this in Jesus' name.